Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we're going to be reading verses 22 through 41. Uh, The focus will be on verses 36 through 39, but we'll read the longer text. Page 910 in your few Bibles. The context of this passage is Peter is preaching at Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit has come upon the apostles. They are able to preach in languages that they did not previously know. The Holy Spirit has come upon them, and this is really a a pretty awesome story here uh, of what's going on. The early church, uh, and this we're going to pick up in the middle of Peter's sermon, beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand and I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will, make me, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, and he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of, that, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask that you would come into this place this morning. Would you fill our hearts? Would you give us understanding about your word? We thank you that you have not left left us in our sin. You've exposed it to us. You've convicted us of it. You've given us a heart of repentance that we may turn to faith in your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. (coughs) There's a famous line that you've probably heard before describing the human condition, describing the fallen, depraved heart of mankind. It says, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not between classes, not between political parties either, but right through every human heart. 
And so the problem is not there, is not out there somewhere with all these people doing these bad things or, or this group over here, they just can't seem to get it together. That's not what's wrong with the world. What's wrong with the world is right here inside each and every one of us. It's not those people that do bad things. It's good and evil are found inside of all of our hearts. We're capable of loving people, of being patient and kind. We're also capable of horrible atrocities, every single one of us. There are many illustrations we could look to for this, but let me just offer you one. In the book Being the Body, there's a story told of a Nazi mass murderer named Adolf Eichmann. He was one of the masterminds of the Holocaust. And he was kidnapped in 1960 by Israeli agents and put on trial. The one witness that was brought forward against him was a man named Yehiel Denur. He was an Auschwitz survivor. And as he entered the courtroom and his eyes met Eichmann, he began to scream uncontrollably and to sob. He broke down. 60 Minutes would interview him some weeks later and say, why, why the emotional outburst? Did, did, all, did you recall everything that had happened to you while in the concentration camp or maybe something that you had seen Mr. Eichmann do? What was it that caused this reaction? And this is what he said. He said, I was overwhelmed by the fact that Eichmann was just an ordinary man. I expected a monster, this, somewhat, this evil incarnate, but he was just an ordinary man. And he said, I was afraid about myself because in Eichmann, I saw what I was capable of. We don't like this illustration because we want to think of ourselves, no, okay, wait a minute. I would never do that. I would never do the atrocities that were committed in the Holocaust. But what Denur said, I see myself in that man because I know what I'm capable even in my own heart. Here's the point. We think the real problem with this world is out there, what other people are doing. But we think the real problem is if we could just get the right person in the political office. If everyone would just become a Republican, if everyone would just become a Democrat, then everything would be solved. If everyone would just start supporting this cause or that cause, then things would really start turning around for this nation. If everybody would just start doing good things, if everybody would just start believing in God. Our problem is that we are sinners. Our problem is that pe it's not that people don't believe in God. People aren't going to hell for not believing in God. They're going to hell because they're lost in their sin and they haven't been forgiven. The problem is not out there. The problem is in here within our own heart. And this is what Peter's driving at. He's driving, his sermon's driving for conviction. He wants them to see their sin, feel bad about it, and endeavor to change the way that they live. And so he begins his sermon in verse 14. He's standing there with the other 11 apostles, and he's preaching for conviction. He's been given the power of the Holy Spirit. And so they preach these tongues that they're preaching with, these 15 other nations, perhaps more, that they're able to speak in their language, speaking the gospel. And so he begins. He begins by quoting the Old Testament, Joel chapter 2. Psalm 16, Psalm 110, and he's showing the Jews, look, you've missed it. See, Jesus is a fulfillment of all these things. He is the one that we've been wanting to come. He's the long-awaited Savior. You missed him. You missed who this Jesus is. The one you mocked, the one you derided, the one you called a blasphemer, he's the Lord in Christ that we've been hoping for. Peter goes on, he declares that Jesus died and he was raised from the dead. And he said, and we were all witnesses to that. 
You can't dispute this evidence. We saw this man. We saw what happened to him. We saw him raised. Peter declares that all this is true. And then he gets to the the crux of the matter, the, the, the climax, if you will, of his sermon in verse 36. You did this to the Lord and Christ of this world. You see, Peter starts this gospel sermon with pointing out people's sin. He's got to start with sin. He's got to start with the problem before people are going to see their need for who Jesus is and what he's come to do. So, Peter says, Jews, this man you thought was a blasphemer and this rabble-rouser, no, he's Lord in Christ. You can't claim ignorance. You can't claim innocence. Maybe you weren't there. Maybe you didn't literally yell as Jesus was being put on the cross, but you are complicit in that. You are just as guilty as anyone else, just as we are. Peter is pressing this guilt. He's pressing this shame home. You miss the importance of who he was. You miss the importance of what he's done. So if the goal that Peter's trying to end with is repentance, how do we get there? If the goal is, I'm wrong and I need to change my ways, well, how do we get there? Our three points. Repentance implies revelation. Number two, repentance implies conviction. And then lastly, repentance implies action or it implies change. As I mentioned, verse 36 is the climax here. It's this decisive blow that that Peter is offering, this last thunderous accusation. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, Jews. You did it. This Jesus that you put to death, it was your fault. You mocked him, you hated him, you put him on the cross. He's Lord in Christ. He's not the person that you said he was. Peter says, no for certain. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is the Savior we were looking for, and this is what you did to him. He wants them to now, the very person that they mocked and hated, flip it around, repent of that, and now love him and embrace him. But the only way they're going to do that is to see that what they had done was wrong. How did you first start loving Jesus Christ? You first saw yourselves as a sinner. And you first were told that the only way that this problem can be fixed here within my heart is to put my faith and trust in him, to love him. The goal was for the hearers that day to see their need for the very, to, for the very one, in the very one that they had once hated. You know, we've got to deliver the bad news to people before we can tell them the good news. We've got to tell them the bad news of their sin before the good news is going to be something that they want or the good news is even going to make any sense. We must be shown that we have a need for salvation before we're going to want salvation. Imagine if a doctor came in to your, uh, you went to the doctor's office and he came in and said, okay, here are your medications. Nothing had been said to that point. Here, here are your medications. You need to do this and take this on Tuesdays and Thursdays and this on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and this is exercise regimen you need to be going through. What would you want to say? Well, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> What's wrong with me? If you don't start with the medication. You don't start with the routine to make yourself better. You start with the problem. The medication, you're not going to desire that until you know what is wrong with yourself. And that's where Peter's starting. So I ask you, Have you seen the sin in your own heart? Have you seen how black and dark it is? Have you been appalled at times at the things you've maybe said about someone or thought about someone? How could I have thought that? 
We think the problem's out there. Well, I would never do what Adolf Eichmann did at the Holocaust, but you're just as evil. You're just as cunning. You're just as vile in your own heart. Have you ever been prompted to say what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, verse 9? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Peter is exclaiming to these listeners, you were wrong about Jesus, and you need to change your mind about that. You think you can sit on the throne of your life? You can't. Only Christ can. You think that you're basically good? I know I do some things wrong, but that's not really who I am. It is who you are. It's an outpouring of what you are inside your heart. Upon Christ coming to this world, he says in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, upon the initiation of his ministry, he says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is here and I'm the king, says Jesus. You aren't. You can't save yourself and you can't live the way that you want to. I'm the king and you must follow me. Boy, we don't like that one bit, do we? We want to be king and queen of our own lives. And so we rebel against this idea. I'm in charge of my happiness. I'm in charge of my marriage. I'm in charge of my sexuality. I'm in charge of my future. That's what we believe. We rebel against him in in regards to our own salvation. I'm in charge of my salvation. I'm going to do good. I'm going to love other people. So here, God, here's my goodness, as if we're bartering with him. Now give me back my blessings and give me back my salvation. We must change our minds about that. We think that we're in charge of our life. We think that we're in charge of our salvation. We think that the real problem is, yes, just some disconnected sinful acts that we do, or that the real problem is those people out there doing the bad things. When the real problem is right here in our own heart and the outpouring that that we are able to see in our sinful actions. You know, in life, we often think that our real problem is that we're not pretty enough, we don't have enough money, we don't have the right job, we don't have the right spouse, we don't live in the right neighborhood. If, if these things would just come around, then things will start falling into place for me. It's because we don't think we're sinners, and we don't think our sin impacts those things. And when it comes to Christianity, we think we just need a little nudge, a little push along in the right direction, and everything will be okay. We don't see how our sinfulness permeates everything that we do, every thought that we have, the selfishness and every deed that we do, it's who we are as fallen individuals. We are just like Adolf Eichmann. We are just that sinful. Donald McLeod in his book, A Faith to Live By, says this, Unless we understand sin and its solemnity and the damage it has done to our human existence, we cannot hope to appreciate such evangelical doctrines as the cross and the person of Christ. Christianity begins with a sense of sin because it is in conviction of sin that all perception of God's word and the glory of Christ have their origin. You see that? Christianity begins with an understanding of sin. It's the starting point, and it's where Peter begins his sermon. We've got to see, as I mentioned before, the bad news before the good news makes sense and before it's something that's attractive to us. Because as Paul says, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that sin, the wages, the payment for that sin is death. The Bible tells us that we're not basically good. We aren't inherently good. We don't basically have it all together. 
It's actually the opposite and far worse than we could ever imagine. Has your sin been revealed to you? Has someone told you that because of your sin, Christ went to the cross? Has someone told you how bad it really is, how dark it really is, and have you believed that? This is why the doctrine of sin has to be included any time we present the gospel to somebody. They've got to see how bad it is. They have to know what they need to be saved from before they're going to desire the salvation. They have to see the need before they're going to want the cure. So repentance, a life of repentance and turning to God, implies the fact that your sin has been revealed to you. It also implies you've been convicted of that sin. The Holy Spirit clearly is at work in the hearers this day because it says they were cut to the heart. So point number two, repentance implies conviction. The listeners are cut to the heart, or literally, they were pierced in the heart. The consciences are stirring within them. They're troubled. They don't know what to do about it. What does it mean to be convicted of your sin? You've ever felt conviction before? What, What happened? How were you convicted? You felt something within you. I was wrong. I need to ask for forgiveness. Uh, I, I'm a, generally, I'm a sinful person. I need to find forgiveness in Christ. Well, what was Peter trying to convict the people of that day? He was convicting them of these things. He told them that they were responsible for the death of Christ. He told them that they were responsible for not seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy. He told them they were responsible for not worshiping Jesus as Lord and Christ. And he told them they were responsible for not seeing the reality of the cross and resurrection and glorifying Christ accordingly. We assume these are the things that they were convicted of. You missed who Jesus was in the the prophecies. You missed the, the magnitude of what he had done. And the very man that you hated and mocked, you put on the cross. You need to be convicted of that, Jews. There was a famous Methodist evangelist named Peter Cartwright. He was known for his bold and uncompromising preaching. And one day in his little church, President Andrew Jackson came to his worship service. He walked in the back doors, and the elders of the church scurried up to the front to talk to Pastor Cartwright and say, okay, the president's here this morning. Let's not say anything crazy. Let's be a little guarded in our our remarks. Let's not say anything to offend him. So content that their pastor wouldn't say anything just too radical, they went and sat down. Pastor Cartwright got up to speak, and the first words out of his mouth were this. I understand that President Andrew Jackson is here this morning. My elders have asked me to be a little guarded in my remarks, but I have this to say. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he does not repent of his sins. The gasp goes up from the congregation, as you can imagine. How could he have said that? As after all, the the President of the United States had, had power for good or for bad upon a church. He could... He could have silenced him if he chose. Everyone was wondering how President Jackson might respond to this pastor as he approached him after the service was over to shake his hand. He extended his hand to Pastor Cartwright, shook his hand and looked in his eye, and he said, Sir, if I had a regiment as bold as you, I could conquer the world. This is what Peter is saying to the crowds. He's preaching for conviction. Was it true in what Peter Cartwright said to Andrew Jackson that morning? If you don't repent of your sins, you will go to hell. Yes, it is true. And it's true for all of us here this morning. 
He was bold, but he was right. He was bold, but he was just explaining what the scriptures say. Do you believe this? Do you believe unless you turn and change your mind about your sin, that it's awful and nasty, you turn to Christ in faith. If you don't do that, you will never know him, and you'll spend eternity apart from him. This is what Peter Cartwright was saying. He was just saying what the Bible says. The Jews did not worship Jesus as Lord and Christ. Often we don't worship Jesus as Lord and Christ either. We think we can make decisions for ourselves. When, when things get bad, finally we ask God for his help and assistance. The Jews didn't see the magnitude of Christ dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. And you know what? Often we don't either. God came down in the flesh to live a perfect life without sin. That's what you were supposed to do, but you couldn't because you were in sin. He came down and lived perfectly for you and me. And so the wages of sinners death. And so uh, on the judgment day, we were supposed to stand before God and all the wrath was going to be poured out upon us. But Jesus says, no, step aside. I'm going to take all of that condemnation upon me. And not only am I going to take your sin away from you, I'm going to give you my righteousness. So when God now looks upon you, if you're in faith in Christ, he doesn't see you anymore. He sees Jesus, which is wonderful. Our sin brought about the death of Christ. The fruit of that sin is pain. It has hurt relationships. It has broken homes. It has broken families. It's all manner of evil. Do you see this within your own heart? Do you look at an unbeliever like Denur looked at Eichmann in the opening illustration and say, if not for the grace of God, there go I? We are not, if you've put your hope in Christ, you are not better than an unbeliever. You didn't figure it out on your own. You, didn't, you weren't born into the right family. You, you received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not better than anyone. We have been shown our sin, and we've repented of it. So lastly, repentance implies actions, or it implies change. Sin's been revealed. They were convicted. So they looked at the apostles, and they asked the obvious question, oh, we got to do something about this. <laughs> I'm convicted of my sin. Okay, now what do I do? Repent, says Peter. Well, what is repentance? The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines repentance like this. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God, with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Repentance is a saving grace. It was a great, it's the graciousness of God given to you. So if you've repented, it wasn't of you. You were taught and shown that that's the right thing to do. It's conviction of sin. It's a changing of your mind. I'm sinful. I hurt Christ. I rebel against him. I'm convicted of that. It's an understanding of mercy found in Christ. You know the only reason you understand this is God's mercy upon you. Number four. It's a grief and hatred of sin. You don't call your sin some indiscretions or some mistakes that you've made. You hate what you see within you. And you don't want to do it anymore. You're grieved by the hurt that you've caused others. It turns away from sin and towards God. So you're turning away from your sin. That's repentance, turning away. And the turning to God is faith. It's these two things that are involved in conversion. You can't have one without the other. And then lastly, it endeavors or it strives after new obedience. 
If you've been told that all you have to do is accept Christ and you continue living how you have lived before, that's wrong. You endeavor after, you strive after, you desire new obedience. I used to live this way, and now I live this way, according to the commands of God. It's a conversion of the whole person. Your, your thoughts, your will, your affections, your actions. To repent literally means to turn away, yes, but also to change your mind about something. Because after all, isn't that what Peter was asking the people to do? Change your mind about Jesus. You thought he was this awful person. He's not. He's the long-awaited Messiah that we've been hoping for. Change your mind about it. Thus, your actions will then change. Donald McLeod, and again, the Faith to Live By, the book I quoted earlier. He says, a life with Christ begins not at first by believing the Bible is inerrant, though of course it is. It begins with a certain kind of self-understanding, the knowledge of our own guilt, our own depravity, our own alienation from God. This is the best way to read Scripture. The only key to the Scriptures is a sense of sin, the only proper standpoint from which to view Christ as a lost sinner. The only proper, proper perspective on the cross is that of a convicted sinner. Christ came to seek and save that which is lost, and what a splendid job he did. Christ puts us right with God. All our sins are forgiven. Our reputation's vindicated. Our name's enrolled in the family register of God. God in Christ has put us absolutely right. Well, Peter told them to repent, but he also told them to be baptized. You know, baptism was like circumcision. It was how you identified yourself with the people of God. It was a sign to that end, but it also was a seal because baptism also represented the washing away of sin. It didn't actually wash away sin, but it was the seal that that had happened to you, okay? So repent, be baptized, and then the two great promises as a result of those things, forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter is getting to the end. The goal is salvation, and the way you're going to get there is through repentance. And for all those listening, for us, if we would repent of our sin and turn to Christ, we have these two great promises as well. Calvin says about these verses that these include the whole of Christianity. A man renounces himself, he takes his farewell of the world, and may now focus himself wholly to God. If, you're to hear, if you are here today and you are not a Christian, you are not a follower of God, would you please consider these things very carefully? If you're a sinner, God's wrath will be poured out onto you unless you are convicted of your sin and you change your mind about who Jesus is. He's not just someone we've come up with. He's the very Savior of sinners. And he offers you forgiveness and mercy in his son Jesus. If you're a Christian today, this message is still most certainly for you. Remember how the Lord convicted you of your sin, how he brought you out of the darkness of your own selfishness and self-absorption. But know that repentance doesn't just end with being saved. It's a life of repentance. It's a life of, Lord, forgive me. Lord, turn my heart back to you again. I imagine many of you have heard uh, this illustration before, but I'll use it again. One day a, a newspaper posed a question to all of its readers question was this. What's wrong with the world? I just wanted people to respond. The great Catholic thinker G.K. Chesterton had the most pithy and short response of anyone. He wrote back to the editors of the newspaper, Dear Sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. 
you know, what if we all started to feel the exact same way? It isn't them out there that are the problem. What if we started honestly seeking within ourselves, you know what, my heart is the problem with this world. It's not that political party. It's not that radical religious group. It's not that person that hurt me so deeply is what's wrong with the world. It's my heart is what's wrong with the world. Christ is coming again to save us from the worst thing in the world, our own self-absorption and autonomy and independence. We must repent and change our minds about who Jesus is and believing and following God. We must give up this idea that we can have our life and just kind of have Jesus on the side as if he's, well, when things get bad, I'll call on him and he'll come in and clean things up. We think we can have our own happiness, pursue our own dreams, our own visions, and just leave Jesus out of it. Forgetting that Jesus loves you far more than you love yourself. He has a better plan for you than, than one that you could ever conceive for yourself. Just think, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve lived before the fall with no self-absorption, no autonomy, no selfishness, and they were blissfully happy. Jesus is calling you out of that into this great reversal where it will go back to that once again if you would repent of your sins. Join the kingdom of God. Give up control of your life to King Jesus who will take far better care of it than you can. Peter showed them that this person that they once hated, mocked, and scorned is the one person they must now turn to for mercy and forgiveness and, and salvation. Is that you? Do you hate him? Turn to him for forgiveness. This may seem like an odd passage to look at to kick off Advent, but I believe it transitions very well. Do you believe and trust in this man who came to this world for you to live the perfect life you couldn't live? Not you didn't live, you couldn't possibly live. Do you believe and trust in him? If you don't, I pray that Jesus would reveal himself to you this morning. Would you ask him humbly to show you your sin? Convict you of that sin and turn your heart to him. Change your mind about who Jesus is and what he can do for you. And if you know Jesus this morning, praise the Lord. Remember your testimony. Remember how he showed you your sin to yourself. And that you would walk closer and love deeper this Jesus, who is both Lord and Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much that you did not leave us in our sin, that you showed us our problem and that it is in our heart, and that by the work of the Holy Spirit, you regenerated us, you gave us a new heart, one that loves you, one that desires to do your will. And Lord, that that would be true of us. And Lord, those here this morning that don't know you, maybe thought they did, but they realized that they don't, that they would repent of their sins, turn to your son Jesus Christ and put their hope in him. And it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.